This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast where we watch sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Starflight, the plane that couldn't land. Starflight is an airplane, it's not a spaceship. It's designed to operate in a gravity field. Take a look at this. See, before the booster rockets are cut off, that thing is moving at better than half a mile a second straight out towards space. What Josh is worried about is the possibility of a slip that could lift Starflight right out of the atmosphere. You and I know that can't happen. Yeah, but supposing it does, what does that do in terms of cabin pressure? Well, you'd have a pressurized craft pushing against the nothingness of a zero atmosphere. So if there's any structural flaw... Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that's out of this world. I'm Luke, here's my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Here's a line I liked. Give me a reading on the oxygen clock, will ya? We need an oxygen clock. Oxygen. It sounds like I'm saying oxygen. Oxygen clock. We need to see what our oxygen levels are at all times. You want to know what that O2 is doing. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's even better. I want to know what the O2, the O2 clock, the O2C. Well, you do walk around with that O2 tank that you like to just hop out of for fun. <laughs> it's just for safety. It's right next to the helium tank you also hop out of. <laughs> Hey, question for you. So we're going to be doing an episode uh, today uh, that's on this movie called Starflight, The Plane That Couldn't Land. But I noticed when we started watching the show, the titling on the episode just says Starflight 1. What is the title? Is it Starflight 1? It is hard to say. My understanding is the original title is Starflight, The Plane That Couldn't Land. But it was also released theatrically, internationally, where it was released under Starflight Mm. 1. Starflight, The Plane That Couldn't Land, I think is a better title. It's a good title. That's why I prefer to call it that. And on IMDb, that is the title to give. And I couldn't find any where this is written down. This is how well-researched this podcast is. But on IMDb, it also refers to it as Airport Airport 85, as if it's like a continuation of the airport series. Um, But from what I can tell, even just like trying to find reference to this, it seems like maybe a critic when this movie came out, said it should have just been Airport 85, and then it kind of like got, it garnered that moniker on its own. Yeah, I saw the same thing. I think it's more of like, dare I say, like a fan's version, what they people have been calling it is, because as we'll talk about, this is clearly uh, in the genre of like uh, 1970s disaster movies, specifically the airport movies. Have you seen any of the airport movies? I've never seen an airport movie. I've seen the first airport movie, but I've never saw... I think it was airport, and then it was like airport 77 and 79 or something like that. But I saw the first one years and years ago. Changed your life. Uh, it's better than this. Okay, great. <laughs> well, this movie stars the $6 million man himself, Lee Majors, and Barney Miller, Hal Linden. So it can't be better That's than right. that. The airport can't be better than this. Well, it's it's funny because, I mean, that was always a thing of uh, the disaster genre, right? It would be like... Uh, it's the movie is like bigger than than big, you know. It's got a huge idea. It's Poseidon Adventure, or it's uh, you know a Towering Inferno, and it's got the big stars of the day. And there's and the the you know opening credits just keep going of all the people in it. This one, it's like it's a TV version, so it doesn't quite have the same like cachet, you know. When you're like you're like Lee Majors, you're like awesome, Helen, great. They're like Lorna Hunt, and you're like okay, and then they're like Ray Milland. Gail Strickland, you're like, all right, I don't know who any of these people are. You're like, don't you remember they were in that? They were like number six on a sitcom in 1968. You're like, okay, sure. Well, it's also directed by a man who had worked with Lee Majors quite a bit. They uh, were on Six Million Dollar Man together and then went on to make three 
feature our TV movies together. So this is a real Lee Majors uh, joint, I think. So I I saw that too. Now, do you think Lee Majors was bringing this director along? He's like getting a project. He's attached to it. He's like, I got the director for it. Or do you think this director is like, I know who should star in this. And he's bringing Lee Majors on. Like who's helping who? That's a good question. I had figured it was the director was doing them. But you're right. It might be the other way. Because, I mean, that happens all the time. Like, uh, mm-hmm. The Rock has his directors who he, he does the movie and he just brings the director along because he knows he gets along with them. That's what I assumed. I assumed it was, like, you know, Lee Major's star's not as quite as high as it was. Although he was in, like, I think he was doing The Fall Guy at this point. Like, he had two big shows. So, like, I have a feeling he had enough, uh, you know, enough uh, uh, stuff going for him that he was like, hey... I got a guy for it. I got a guy for this TV movie. He's easy to work with. We've done this before. You know, it'll be smooth. Well, I mean, I'll give it to this. It's not badly directed. So uh, the guy's not terrible. No, I agree. I agree. And I will I will say this. There's um, at least one sequence uh, I will give on this movie that I thought was quite good. And it's the sequence we're going to talk about where there's um, like a tube coming out of the ship and people are going through it. I actually thought that had was directed with a little bit of flair. Well, you always imagine and fantasize of being a hamster, so that was a big deal for you, that tube, that human tube, <laughs> hamster tube. No, but you know what it is? It's like these TV movies usually, um, not all the time, but usually there's they're so, um, the directing is so like perfunctory, right? It's just like talking heads and there's no, it's just like wide shots close. There's nothing interesting. But this does have some attempts at some, uh, uh, a little bit more flair, you know? Well, it was broadcast on February 27th, 1983. And uh, i got two little little tidbits for you about 1983, uh, February. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the day this movie comes out, Jordan, actor mm-hmm. Kate Mara is born. Oh, yeah, okay. One of those uh, uh, rich sisters. Are they rich sisters? I didn't know that. Are they nephews? Yeah, I think... Yeah, yeah. I think their dad like owns like a baseball team or something. That's how you make it in this world, own a baseball That's team. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's how we missed out, Luke. Your dad just owns that like uh, like farm league football team. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> All you get is a podcast. We don't make any money. <laughs> and two days before the movie comes out on February twenty fifth, Jordan Tennessee Williams dies. Oh, really? Interesting. It's too bad he had his VCR set for this and everything. <laughs> eighty three though, huh? He died in nineteen eighty three. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that he lived that long either. But there you go. It's funny. Certain people you just like kind of um pinpoint them to certain time periods you know and you just go like oh they were still around but like yeah people get old and jordan in 1983 we've only ever watched one other tv series can you guess what that tv series is i think i know what it is are you ready are you ready for this pitch me over i'm ready auto man yo you're right it is auto man yeah yeah the one show you always remember (laughs) i think there's i think uh if i remember this correctly i think we watched a bunch of things around this like things from like 81 and 79 and 85 86 but i think this is the other than auto man weirdly this is 83 this is a a a little area we haven't uh area we haven't hit before yeah they don't make shows during this period of time just auto man (laughs) oh can i tell you something i i did a little bit of research and uh this didn't do so well in its time slot i couldn't find the exact how it did in the ratings but it did beat there was one other a TV movie that aired directly across this um, when it, whenever this aired. Let's say it was 9 p.m. on a Thursday or whatever it is. And it was a TV movie called, uh, which it did beat, called Cocaine, One Man's Seduction. Ooh. Um, that was the other TV movie that was played at the same time. And it had in its cast, I looked it up, not in, there weren't the stars, but Jeffrey Tambor's in it, James Spader, and Denise Crosby. <laughs> what a cast. I know, huh? Yeah. So anyways... 
cocaine, one man's seduction, did not do as well. People did not like it as much as uh, Starline, the plane that couldn't land. Starflight, please. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but let me, let me mention one other thing. We we kind of talked really briefly that this was part of like the disaster genre. Now, I could be wrong, but I think it's weird to me that it came out in 1983. I don't think I'm probably the only one because I think disaster movies, they kind of run their course, right? Like I looked it up in both Airplane and Airplane 2, the parody movies, came out before this. So when you already have a parody movie of a genre, I think the genre is pretty much kick the bucket right so like airplane 2 i think came out in 82 so it was already out before this this movie came out it's like one more go at the disaster movie i just feel like maybe this came out a little too late for anyone to care but maybe i'm wrong i don't know i mean i guess that's just tv movies for you though right you're not you're not coming out when the trend's hot you're coming out when you're trying to catch it yeah i suppose anyways 83 if any there was anyone who was still dying to see some disaster this is this is will be up your alley well, here's the IMDb summary for Starflight, the plane that couldn't land. This is the story of Starflight 1, the world's first, quote, hypersonic, end quote, plane, which flies faster and higher than any other commercial jet. On the night of its maiden flight from Los Angeles to Sydney, a freak accident involving an unauthorized rocket launch sends Starflight out of the atmosphere and into a decaying orbit around the Earth. Uh, and that truncated summary was courtesy of No Gimmicks. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thanks, No Gimmicks. There's a lot of this movie that I didn't quite understand. And I realized and decided I don't really care and it doesn't really matter. And I was right. It doesn't really matter. Like stuff happens and I think there's supposed to be tension. I would say one of the biggest faults of this movie is it doesn't create the tension I believe it is looking to do. Uh, and I think it's kind of supposed to be doing that like tightening noose sort of feeling. And I, with the exception of a few couple scenes, it doesn't quite do that. But a lot of the stuff I was like, why is there a rocket shooting? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Why is this happening? It doesn't really matter. You know, <laughs> and there's no, there's no, it doesn't really matter. You kind of know where it's going, you know? Well, it starts off with 24 hours to take off of Starflight 1. And uh, in that 24 hours, we're going to quickly be introduced to all of the players and passengers of Starflight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and they really take their time. Like I, I checked it, and uh, Luke, it was twenty three minutes. It's twenty three minutes until There's a lot of people until the 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 ship actually takes off. That's when the the launch sequence starts. It's twenty three minutes into this. Up until that point, it's literally just introducing characters. Well, first up is Josh Gilliam, played by Hal Linden. He's the designer of yeah. Starflight, the engineer, if you will. And for my money, I would say he's the best thing in this movie. I mean, it's that mustache. It's really carrying the movie. But you know what? I have to say, I think he was pretty good in the role. I never really watched Barney Miller, so I'm not that familiar. I know who he is, but I did, you know, wasn't that familiar with his work. I we're gonna meet uh, Lee Major's character later on. I find him to be so sleepy in this movie. Like it's they might as well have his him holding the script in his hand. He's so <laughs> nonchalant about performing. And I will say later on, near the very end of the movie, he has a kiss scene, and it is the least evocative least cinematic laziest kiss scene i've ever seen in a movie it was like he's dead <laughs> he wasn't that interested in it he wasn't that interested in it so i'll say this like he's okay i personally think they could have maybe had a more dynamic lead sorry lee majors i hate to say that for some lee majors fans i just feel like he was like Meh. 
in this movie. Well, let's get back to Josh Gilliam. He's getting ready for the mm-hmm. first flight of his his new plane. He's very nervous about it. He's running simulations. He's talking about postponement. He's really worried about it slipping out of the atmosphere as it flies off because it's a rocket-powered plane that gets quite high, I guess, in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's just very concerned it's going to slip off into space. And everyone's like, don't worry, it'll be fine. Well, and what's interesting is there's a lot of time sort of invested in him saying he's nervous, but he can't really prove why. And he doesn't have any statistics or any tests or anything that back up other than he just has a feeling, a feeling that something's not right. So there's even a scene where he goes to see his bosses and he's like, can we do a delay? I want to do a few more tests. And they're like, why? Why would we ever do that? And he can't prove it. And of course, obviously, we know it's a disaster movie. He's going to be somewhat proved to be uh, correct. It's not exactly what I think he was worried about, but he was at least proven correct that maybe they should have taken a little more time. Um, although, I don't know, Luke, am I, am I, is that wrong? Like, if they had taken, let's say they'd taken three more days and everything else happened exactly as it would have, that wouldn't have changed anything, right? If they'd taken three more days, and we'll get into it, Jordan, uh, the flight would have been fine. Do you think so? But what, let's, let's, say, let's say the other rocket sh- shot exactly the same. It's still shot three days later. Yeah, well, then if the exact same set of coincidental circumstances yeah. happened in three days after this, then the same thing would have happened. Right. Okay, that was my point. So, so yes, he's right, but it's also just, like, such a coincidence of events that, like, sure, okay, anyone could have, you know, anyone could be right. I mean, the real problem with it, I guess, and this is jumping way too far ahead, is the problem is it flies too close to the end of the atmosphere, I guess. So there's just a risk it's going to fly out mm-hmm. and it's just not prepared to re-enter at atmosphere. So really the only problem is it's just like they didn't design it to go into space when there's a legitimate chance it might go into space. Right. Okay. Okay. That's fair. But that's not what he's worried about. He's just like worried about something. The engines will fire wrong or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Anyway, since we're jumping all over the place, let's keep going back to uh, some of these characters, Jordan. There is mm-hmm. uh, old man industrialist QT Thornwell and his son Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I thought actually QT was the son, but yes, it's the two Thornwells, anyways. Yes. Well, QT he's promised the government the moon for this uh, star flight because they've given him all <laughs> kinds of tax breaks to build it, and he's not going to postpone it. He's promised too much. Yeah, I and I don't exactly know. I guess it's it's eventually going to be like a commercial airliner, so he'll make money because of it being a private airline, correct? Yeah, that's basically it. He's just he's just an yeah. industrialist with a bunch of irons in the fire. And I, what I like is like nothing's changed in the world. It's still the same thing where like billionaires build wildly speculative projects on government money. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they should have had a thing where like everyone it was everyone else's money invested and they all lost it. Well, he, he says he, he says they have, I think, $20 million maybe tied up in it, but, like, the rest of it is just, like, the government paid for it. And I'm just like, well, $20 million didn't build this plane for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not a plane that goes, what does it go, 2,500 kilometers or something like that? Yeah, supersonic, my friend. <laughs> it does. It goes very fast. It's We're going to learn it goes to Australia, L.A. to Australia in two hours. It's fast, my friend. Yeah. And his son Martin is a bit more even-handed. He's supposed to be the uh, even-handed billionaire um but he also gives into his dad when his dad uh, starts blustering at him about canceling the canceling the flight Mm -hmm. yeah he sort of brings to his dad like you know uh josh who they've who's kind of the head of the program you know he's having some cold feet maybe they should listen to him and they're like no why would we and he's yeah you're right let's not listen to him yes daddy (laughs) yeah it's supposed to be the similar to if you've watched like the towering inferno like the sort of conversations they have about the building being built too fast i think it was uh 
Paul Newman's character, like, oh, well, we're not going to have the electrical work up in time. It won't be sound. And you're like, oh, I think that's going to come back later in the movie. The next character is the publicist for Starflight, Erica Hansen. (laughs) Okay, so here was a weird character. It took me a couple scenes for her to realize who she was, because at first I thought she was a reporter. And I guess she kind of was because, yeah, she's a publicist for them. But it was... They, it, weirdly for a movie that takes so long to explain characters I don't think they explain that very well because we spend a lot of time with like her and her daughter we find out she's kind of having an affair and stuff and I was like okay but then what does she do again because she's on the plane but it was like it was weird it was weird anyways but yes yeah, she's the publicist yeah she's just the publicist she's setting up she's setting up uh, the reporter's last minute arrangements to be on the flight and uh, her daughter is not a fan of her wanton flirting with any man on the phone that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and it, it, to be fair, it was a very um, innocent sort of, like, clearly joking flirting she was doing with the reporter. Like, it was like two old friends who were making kind of somewhat little body joke. Like, and the daughter was, I was like, all right, calm down, Cindy, whatever her name was. Well, the daughter's also very uh, disapproving of her mother's extramarital affair that she's currently involved in. <laughs> so that's, that's going to be like, you know, one of the plot points of this movie, and I think I, I said it earlier, is like, so we're going to find out she's having an affair with Captain Cody Briggs, who we're going to meet soon, who's played by Lee Majors. And they handle it in a very weird way. We can talk about it more later, but I was, it seemed weird that it was added and how they handled it, because it just seemed like they tied it up in a neat bow for no reason at all. Well, this daughter's disapproval doesn't matter to her mother. I believe at one point uh, when she's when the daughter's like sulking about it, her mother reprimands her for staying out, to stay out of her business. Daughter, stay out of my extramarital affair business. <laughs> there you go. But she wants to take her daughter on a two-week trip to Australia, which shouldn't be awkward at all. That's right. And oh, by the way, her daughter's name is Lori. Lori is the daughter. Oh, I see. Um, then we finally do check in. With another awkward breakfast, Jordan, the one you've been teasing this whole time. Starflight's mm-hmm. pilot, Captain Cody Briggs, played by Lee Major, is at the breakfast table with his wife, trying to avoid a conversation about their failing marriage. <laughs> yeah, her name's Janet, and she's sort of like, um, she's clearly already sort of irritated. She more than suspects he's been having an affair. I think she sort of knows it, and is has clearly been... The marriage has been tried for a long time, and he's clearly... I don't think this is his first extramarital affair. He seems... Again, I don't know if it's like the the performance choice. He seems sleepy and he seems like he can't be bothered to real have the conversation. Um, but I don't know if that's so much the actor's choice or as much as what was on the script. But it seems like he's just like, eh, whatever. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> he's just gaslighting her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe you're having an affair. <laughs> and then we meet Freddie Barron, who has sunk all of his money into launching a communication satellite from Australia. That's right. And he's the guy with a lot of hair, right? Yes, yes. He's got a ton of hair. Yeah. yeah. He's opening up the satellite because he's hoping to like bring, I guess, phone communications via satellite to millions of people, uh, even the Chinese, which his Australian counterpart thinks is a bad idea and makes a racist joke about. Yeah. Um. Hey, a question for you. This whole kind of, I don't know what you call the C plot or one of the many plots that sort of intertwine at one point. Are we supposed to think he's sketchy? Like, is that what we're, as a viewer, are supposed to get from this? Because they do a lot of shots where he sort of, like, looks nervous, and he sort of looks like he has this, like, air of nefariousness. But I wasn't sure how I was supposed to feel about him. I think you're supposed to think he's desperate, maybe. He's a desperate man. Hmm. Mm. Okay. We'll come back to him, because with, finally, two hours left to launch, we meet Joe Padowski. Which one was Joe? 
He's an employee of Thornwell who has won a contest to ride on the Starflight. He's also an electrical (laughs) engineer and scared to fly. That's right. I forgot about him. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. And these are kind of the core characters that we're going to really need to know. There's a few other characters they introduce us to throughout the throughout this sort of opening. Like in this opening, when everyone's sort of boarding the plane, that's when we meet Joe. It's like right as they board. And at some point they turn around and it's like, and here's a newlywed couple off to Australia for their honeymoon. And it's like, okay, I'll keep track of them. They'll never come back ever. And the old lady really has nothing to do. Yeah, the old lady we'll see one more time, but there's also an old lady from the Christian Reporter. They make spend a long time introducing, considering how we'll how we'll see her again. I was sure there was going to be more to her, at least specifically, because they have her also sit right beside Lori, and I was like, okay, well, this will be kind of like a back and forth, and maybe it'll be some sort of like moral judgment to put her mother or something. I don't know, and it's like, nope. I mean, I'll say nope, they forget about the daughter is as much. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. Anyway, everyone boards the very classy Starflight. It looked very luxurious, Jordan. I, I liked uh, the space, the leather chairs. It looked very nice. I agree. I, ju- I just was on a f- uh, plane not too long ago. And man, is it a difference now. Like the planes, you're like just jammed in as many people as possible. It's uncomfortable. It's noisy. Everyone's unhappy. This was great. They were just like lounging. People are bringing them drinks. I was like, man, put me on a Starflight. Get me on this I don't care Starflight. if it doesn't land. You know? I don't care if it doesn't land. If it doesn't land, all the better. <laughs> Yeah, let's just float around. Let's all have affairs. <laughs> but as they are about to take off, it's been 24 hours, Jordan. We've been waiting for this flight. The White House calls. We're going to delay for another hour and 15 minutes because they need to board the Australian ambassador and his wife. And I thought this was the funniest thing ever where it's just like, I'm like, we're finally launching. They're like, wait, let's wait another hour. I'm like, oh, my it, God. It, it was weird that they did that because I guess it's supposed to be that. You know, can you believe that this last delay kind of put them where, you know, these events that are going to happen? Like, it's one of many things that happen that go wrong. But it was like, why didn't they just mention at one point, oh, by the way, we also have a, we also have a, a, a casket. They need that delay, my friend, because that's right. The yeah. Australian ambassador is dead and mm-hmm. him and his wife are joining because his body is being transported back to Australia. His wife's alive. He's dead. Coffin on the plane. Luke, his, uh, his as we'll see, his mannequin body are dead. <laughs> During the delay, though, Freddie, the man launching that satellite, uh, calls Australia from the plane's phone banks. He's always at those bit phone banks on that plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And it looks like they're going to have to delay the launch of his satellite for a week because the weather is getting bad and NASA's only given them a launch window um, of just after Starflight's supposed to take off. Like, they, you know, they, NASA's like, Starflight needs the airspace. Once it's launched, you guys can launch the satellite. And the Australians are saying, well, by the time that happens, the weather's going to be too bad. We'll have to delay a week. And Freddie can't wait. He can't wait a week. He'll go broke if he waits a week. And I'm just like, how would you go broke if you waited a week? It's already on the tarmac. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. But they're just it's one of those things where you're just like, they need to add that that tension. So you're just like, okay, sure. They need, they just, it has to happen now. So, you know, I can't wait as a viewer. And he's so desperate. He just tells them, launch it right now. Starflight's delayed anyway, and the weather's good. So just, just launch that satellite. Let's get going. Yeah, so they do. What could possibly go wrong, Jordan? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that's the point where I thought there was going to be more... I don't know. I thought we were going to, like, reveal something. Like, he had some ulterior motive or something, but it was just like, eh, isn't that bad timing? It's just bad timing, man, because finally Starflight takes off. No issues. Everyone gets a complimentary scotch. And as they're flying, NASA calls. There's been an unauthorized satellite launch from Australia, and it appears to be malfunctioning. Yeah. And did at this point when they're finally up there and stuff starts happening, didn't this feel a lot like that Stephen King pilot movie we watched? 
that airplane movie. What was that one called? Langoliers. Langoliers. It felt a little bit Langoliers. You thought they were going to go through a time hole and end up in a world where nobody was there? Maybe. Maybe that's why it couldn't land. We're not that lucky. Or though. was it just because that Belky was on the plane running around? <laughs> I forgot he was on that. Yeah, he was terrible. Freddie, of course, is also, as they're flying, conveniently once more on the phone with those Australian, I guess, rocket scientists. The third stage of his rocket carrying the satellite didn't fire, so the uh, rocket's kind of tumbling now, and they have no choice but to self-destruct the rocket before it hits the ground. And that explosion of the rocket sends shrapnel hurtling towards Starflight. I love this. I love the idea that, like, this rocket's a problem. What if we blow it up and they blow it up and that actually makes more of a problem? I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> well, the shrapnel's coming at them and the only option Starflight has is to climb to a higher altitude to get above the shrapnel. It does all right, but one piece of the shrapnel grazes the hull and severs the controls to Starflight's rockets. So now they can't cut off the rockets and they're forced to burn through all their rocket fuel, which forces them out of the atmosphere and into space. So let me ask you, this is the first you know, instance in this TV movie of a pretty long TV movie. It's an hour and 50 minutes where uh, you as a viewer should be like, you know, uh, on the edge of your seat. Did you feel that, Luke, at this sequence when it's, it's climbing higher and higher? Everyone's very calm, which I appreciate. I thought everyone was very calm about all circumstances. Nobody's ever like too panicked. They're all just like panicking is not going to make it better. It's going to make it worse. So let's just like keep an even keel. But maybe if there was a little bit more panic, maybe as a viewer you would feel that tension a little bit more. Maybe, but they don't. They don't have any tension. They, they don't. End up in they space. don't at all. It's just like, so I was watching. I was like, well, I guess this isn't so bad. And it's like, no, it's really bad. Well, as they re- tell us repeatedly, it's not a spaceship, this star flight. It's an airplane. So it should not be in space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always a problem. I did. Like, once I get to space, you know, we get some zero G floating stuff. We get some zero G acting where the actors have to walk around like there's no gravity. I, I thought they did a good job. It was very Star Cops-esque. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. There's a lot of like, you know, slow moving and their arms are kind of floating a little bit. Um, pretty well done all the way around. And I have to say later on, uh, someone, we don't, it's off camera, but someone um, puts like a little like thread, like a rope across the chairs for people to hold on to. And I thought that was a nice little, uh, nice little plot point of like that they would have had that to help people get out. No, it's true. They did. They did a nice job just to just like, we're at zero G now. Here's a few examples of how it might happen. Mm-hmm. Now let's not worry about it anymore. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, it was like, you, you get it, right? Okay, that's a problem. Move on. And now that they're up in space, Starflight's mission control will have to work with NASA to save them. They have a 50-hour time limit before their orbit decays and they hit the atmosphere and burn up. And there's a little less oxygen than that available on the plane. So we've got now our, all, all our time limits are set. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so the first attempt to do something about this is they send the Space Shuttle Columbia up to refuel Starflight. With a line that I thought was very helpful. Is at some point someone says, thank God we learned how to send them up there fast. And I was like, well, that, that yeah. wa- hand waves away all the reasons why this ship goes up and down from space like 75 times. Yeah. And and I did see like uh, multiple people when I was doing a, you know, a little bit of research about this, multiple people mentioned that this is almost the, the least plausible part that they, you know, they, NASA would keep able to keep sending multiple ships up. Um, let me ask you this, Luke. Pretty good idea. Let's say... Sure, they just wave that away. There is no problem of it going up and down whenever it needs to. So it goes up and they have fuel. Don't you think it would be good to have a couple plans if you're taking all the effort to send like astronauts up with a ship in a in a, in a uh, uh, rescue mission? Shouldn't they have had multiple things just in case? Like they must have gone up going, okay, our plan A is to refuel this thing. But if there's a problem with fuel, we have plan B, which is whatever it might be. Don't you think that would have made a little more sense? 
Well, that's the beauty, Jordan. We can do this. We can go up and down. No problem now. So why have more than one plan? We can just turn around in two I guess, hours. I guess it's true. It just seemed odd to me that they wouldn't have been like, you know, you would th- you'd assume NASA in particular has thought out a million different scenarios and has calculated for these countless times. So they would have multiple options if something wrong goes, happens, you know? If something wrong goes, NASA knows. Something wrong goes. Sorry, I said that terribly. <laughs> if something wrong happens, uh, NASA would have a, an explanation or a, a solution. For well, it. I will say I'm glad they didn't because we get a lot of great miniature work. Their space effects look good. Like I actually liked a lot of their like visual effects in this movie. I thought for the most part, um, the miniature work was really good. There's a part later on in the movie, not to spoil things, where we see the plane going through the atmosphere. I didn't think it looked so well, but um, most of the time I thought the miniatures were really good. Yeah, for for the budget level of this movie being a TV movie, I thought they did a very nice job with their miniature work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, Starflight can't re-enter the atmosphere with no heat shield. Um, so they're busy working on a way they might be able to find an angle of entry that they, they'd be able to survive coming in. But for security reasons, the performance characteristics of the design, a direct quote from the show, uh, were never put into the computer. So the only one who can know, can help is the designer, Josh who's on Starflight right now. So they need to get him off the off of Starflight back to Earth to uh, fix the problem. And so that's that's problem number one. It's like, how do we get him from Starflight to the Columbia Space Shuttle and get him back down to Earth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Joan, I don't know if you saw this. And I couldn't vet this trivia anywhere. But there was trivia about this, and I'm going to take it at face value. It probably could be wrong, but I'm going to take it at face value. But it said, apparently, Stanley Kubrick stated in a few interviews that the plot device of needing to return the ship's engineer to Earth to work out the problem, instead of having him, like, try to work it out on the plane without the equipment he needed, was sheer, quote, filmmaking genius. And uh, apparently, he regretted many mistakes he made about physics on uh, 2001, and he, he apparently talks about Starflight as being, like, uh, having a better understanding of of science or something like that. It was very funny to me. I love the idea of Stanley Kubrick sitting around watching this TV movie. Uh, it's funny. I saw the same thing, and I did the I did the same thing you did. I tried to corroborate this and couldn't find any actual uh, information of Kubrick saying this. But let's, for the sake of this podcast and for whoever reported that, that that's true. Because I thought I saw the exact same thing. I'm like, did he actually say this, or is this? Did this get lost in translation somewhere around, uh, you know, somewhere along the way? But I, I have to say, I do actually think it's a good, it's a good uh, moment in this in this uh, uh, movie where it's like, okay, this person's so invaluable. We've already kind of stated that from the beginning of the movie. Now we need to get him out. We understand that the stakes are pretty high for this. Now, it, does it really make sense that he would have again not done any sort of backup work? That like, if anything happened to him this plane doesn't work okay i i don't know if that makes sense but it's it's fun in terms of the plot mechanics of this that we need to get josh out i like thinking about stanley kubrick at home after hard day's work just flipping on the tv he's like ah let's see what's on tonight he's doing post for the shining on this he's like this is really good i would say this fixes all the problems i found in my movie I wish this had come up before 2001. <laughs> I wish they hadn't waited several years to after the disaster genre was important. I mean, it didn't bother Kubrick at all. He sat down and loved every minute of it. He loved it. You know what he wasn't watching? Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> but as we've said, Josh needs to get off. 
So Columbia has a spare airlock compartment and they're going to jury rig it to Starflight's cargo hatch. Um, they're not sure how well it's going to work, so the co-pilot of Starflight volunteers to test it first. He's just like, I've always wanted to be an astronaut, let me test it, make sure it's going to be safe, we can't risk Josh's life. And of course, it doesn't go well. The door comes unlatched, and this co-pilot is violently and hilariously blasted into space. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, is it before this or is it after where we see that there's like like gold ingots like in the uh, in in the in the uh, uh, storage? What do you call it? The cargo space? Is it before or after? Uh, we see that throughout the movie is that there's uh, the, the hole that the shrapnel cut that severed the engine lines is uh leaking air into space and we just constantly cut back to the cargo hold and there's just gold ingots floating around yeah why why was there gold ingots floating around no idea just to show you there was no gravity well it's funny because they took the time to mention that there's a casket on board but they don't mention why it's also full of gold i think it's there because they want you to know that the hole in the ship is there and it's getting worse because as the episode as the movie goes on the gold ingots float around and then they start floating out into space and then they see the gold ingots outside of the plane just floating around they're like "Uh uh-oh that's a problem yeah well and and then they get to have a thing where they're like what are the one co-pilots like there's millions out there and and uh, uh lee majors can sleepily say like doesn't matter to us because we're stuck up in space. You're like, uh, another line reading? He's like, no, that works. <laughs> so they have to come up with a new idea. This this escape hatch is just blown off into space with the unlucky co-pilot or his, like, dummy corpse. It was great. I loved it when he flew away. Yeah. yeah. There's there's two instances of, like, dummies, and I think this was another one. And the, the one we eventually see the dead body, it's the best mannequin. I loved it. It just doesn't move at all. So they come up with a new idea. Coffins, those are airtight, right? <laughs> I saw also um, someone. I love when people poke, uh, uh, like poke, you know, issues with with movies like this. And one was that the the uh, coffin that we see um, is clearly not an airtight version. I'm like, but there are airtight versions. Like, yes, yes, there are. Like, okay, then it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Who cares if it's not the appropriate model? It's a it's a fake movie. It didn't really happen. And. They're going to take that coffin with the ambassador's body in it. They're going to use it to put Josh to float out there. Even though the Australian ambassador's widow is weeping openly, begging them not to do it. Yeah, yeah, they're basically like, hey, uh, is our one chance. It's a pretty good idea. We're going to put Josh in this casket. We're going to have the astronauts move him around. He's got about four minutes of air, so they can do it in four minutes or less. He's fine. And, And they're like, well, we have to tell the widow. They tell her, and she's like, you think she'd be like, you know what? I'm doing it for the good of everyone on board. And she's just like, no, like she's weeping. And they're like, anyways, we're still going to do it. It was so funny. It was such a funny scene to just cut to. They're just like sitting next to this weeping woman. I went for a second. I'm like, who is this exactly? Why does she keep saying it's disrespectful? And I'm like, oh, right. It's probably his, uh, his wife. To be fair, let's say you're in a cargo hold. It's your dead body. You're just floating around anyways, right? Like this cold space air, you're, you're going to be preserved fine. You're already embalmed. Well, to be fair, they took her aside and they said, we're going to use the casket to send Josh across to NASA. And then once your husband's body's floating around, we're going to pose him in funny positions like we can get him Bernie's and like have a good time with him backstage. <laughs> She's like, no, you can't do that. Like, it's too late. We're already doing it. We have sunglasses on him right now. Yeah. They're like, do you see that guy over there playing cards and winning? Guess what? That's your dead husband. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so disrespectful. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and again, we'll be in a couple scenes. We're gonna see him floating. I love, I love the look of it. But I should say, this is actually a pretty cool sequence. It's not a bad idea, and it's a pretty cool sequence of Josh getting in. And and I think if it was filmed in a slightly different way, um, uh, you would have felt felt it a little bit more. Um, I think like you maybe would have felt that claustrophobia of him being in in the casket. It doesn't quite. It doesn't quite work. It's not as effective as it could be, but I think it's a it's a generally a good idea for both them, the characters in the universe, and for us as viewers watching it. Yeah, it's fun. We get to watch him float across space, or like mm-hmm. I think the the seal in the casket cracks a little bit, but they they manage to get him across, and they're like, "Oh, we saved we saved Josh," and they get him back to Earth. And Josh is just like, really quickly he gets back to Earth. Yeah, Josh is like, "We got to fix this problem. We got to solve this issue." And what we see is Josh is just watching the computer run seemingly random simulations because he happens to look up and we're just seeing this like really like 70s like computer graphic simulation of of Starflight. And as he's looking at it, he sees the simulation is attaching a different kind of hatch to the plane. Like I wouldn't have known what was happening or why it was doing this. It doesn't even make sense really. Like why is yeah. this computer running random simulations? But when he sees that, he it immediately gives Josh an idea. He's like, "Hey, wait a minute." Doesn't Thornwell's space manufacturing division, don't they make a really long tube? Yeah. And and this is, I would still say, my favorite part of the movie. So it's like, I, I did like, it's it, they I think they go down this well a few too many times where like Josh is looking at something and has like a realization. Um, but I think this first one was pretty good, which is, I mean, sure, it's convenient. Like, don't you guys also make this giant tube? They're like, yeah, like, you know what we should do? Why don't we stick a giant tube and have people walk from one ship to another? They're like, great, let's try it. Yeah, they toss one on Columbia, it flies back into space, and they, they attach it to the uh, two ships, and uh, it's time to send passengers across. So, now, this this is, I guess they try to set this up, because what they, you, you will have it set up very quickly, is that it's a pretty long tube. I don't know why they had to put the whole tube, because apparently the ship can fly up and down the Columbia anytime it feels like it, but you can only have about five people go across, and I think it's because of the weight of the people that are in this um in this tube, but it looks very much like you said, like something you'd see in like a playground or something like that. Um, but couldn't there, there must've been other ways they could have just had the, if the Columbia could go up and down, whenever it feels like it, it, there seems like there must've been other solutions for it to like get close. And like, I don't know, they, they don't have some sort of like container they can attach. And I they don't tried, know. They tried that airlock, Jordan, just flew that man into space. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Anyways, the point is they're going to have this tube set up. They can send five people at a time, so they're going to start trying to send the uh, the civilians, the passengers on this from tube to get to the Columbia so they can bring them back home. And the first five make it across no problem. In fact, it looked fun to me. It looked fun bouncing around on that tube. And and again, this is the part I liked. It it was it's like it's sort of orange and they're a little bit in shadow and it's sort of the cameras at odd angles and they're sort of like they get all the actors I think do a pretty good job of bouncing around and showing that like it's not very stable and it's kind of hard to move through this thing. Um, and uh, yeah, you're seeing the first five make it okay. And then the next five, not so much. Well, Jordan, you knew things were trouble when they cut back to the next five and it was old yeah. exploding satellite Freddy climbing on board. You're just like, well, this isn't going to go well. Yeah. And they do also do a couple shots of, um, they keep, they keep showing the side of the ship that had been damaged and every now and like it sort of sparks. So it shows you that like, it's still, hot or it's still live and uh and unfortunately it's exactly where the tube is the tube goes near it at one point touches it and i guess because of the oxygen that is running through the tube it sort of ignites immediately and just explodes itself and everyone that's in it yeah it's a fiery climax freddy's blown up for some reason the woman from the christian reporter is also in there she dies immediately i'm just like that's why we had so much set up for her so she could also die in that tube 
Yep, and that's it. I mean, it does. It at least does a good job of like anyone can die except for your stars. <laughs> I also got to say, as you said, Jordan, the space hamster tube has been attached next to the hole in the ship that is sparking and shooting gold ingots out of it. Earlier in the episode, the NASA astronauts go to it. They see there's a huge hole that's shooting sparks out, and they call the pilot and say, "Hey." turn off power to this thing that's shooting sparks out of your plane. There's a huge hole in the side of your plane. And they say, got it. And then like an hour later, NASA comes. They not only like set up the tube next to the hole, which they already know is there, but also nobody turned off the power. They just couldn't. They just couldn't. He didn't have time. (laughs) It was just so funny that they like spent all that time calling it out and telling them how to fix it. And then like 30 minutes later, it's just like, oh, we don't care about it anymore. It's going to blow up this uh, whole tube. (laughs) It's because in the third act, you need someone out to fix it. But Luke, there's a line in this that I think is your new pickup line. Um, one of the characters, I think it's Josh, says, he's like, the conduit's still hot. And that's your new pickup line. Is that a good one? Is that a good pickup line? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your conduit's still hot. What is the conduit in the context of this pickup line? I, th- I, th- I think it's below the belt. And then you just uh, you just uh, move your eyebrows up and down knowingly, you know? But wait, am I the conduit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe it's not so good. <laughs> if you need to explain it, it's not so good. You can pass through me to the ship on the other side. It's still hot. <laughs> All right, don't use it. Fine. Anyway, back on Earth, Josh is pretty upset he's killed those people. But as his wife consoles him, he uh, is hit with another burst of inspiration because they have a weird conversation where she's just like, how would you fix it if you could he's like i don't know i just drive a bus up there and pick them up and he's just like wait a bus that gives me an idea yeah and you're gonna have to explain this part to me because i don't know if i understood this next part what is it exactly uh uh logistically that they're trying to do so what the plan is thornwell industries competitor culver air makes a booster tank it's just a really big empty tank that you can Mm -hmm. fill with fuel potentially and it happens to be the right size that would fit inside Columbia's hold. So what he thinks is if they bring this huge tank up there, mount it to the side of Starflight, they can just put all the passengers on it at one time, seal it off, put it back in the hold of Columbia, and just fly them all back down, basically. Luke, all of the passengers, everybody can get on? Well, everybody but the flight crew and three lucky uh, contest winners. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they they I actually thought it was pretty well done, but it's pretty funny. They're like, uh, when they go, we can do it. He's like, it's great, except we can only fit. I can't remember what it is. I think it's like 37 people or something. It's like just short of the amount of people that they have. Yeah, yeah. Thank God they killed those five before. <laughs> yeah, but don't you think, like, let's say they're like, oh, we only have enough. What is it? We only have enough air. Can't they like make some sort of concession? Like we're going to put two of you in uh, in spacesuits so you won't use up the air or something. And no, I know. I was just like, there's more room. The problem is there's a lot more room inside that thing when you see it. You're like, you could all gotten here. Yeah. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The point is that a few people have to stay behind. I like, though, that when when Josh brings this idea to the team, old QT Thornhill, he'd rather let all those passengers die than go to his competitors. Yeah. And it's like, he's like, because his argument is that because the other company their name will be associated with the rescue. People are going to say that company made the rescue and his company, I guess will be like the disaster. And that company will be that saved the day. So because of that, he thinks it's better for everyone to die. Well, also uh, Culver air Jordan, they did a whole bunch of industrial espionage against him last year. And he lost a billion dollar government contract. So he doesn't want to go to them. They're mean jerks. 
And there's that. That's true. There is that. But finally, Jordan, I know you've been waiting for this plot line to resolve. His son, Martin, stands up to his dad and calls Culver Air himself. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I was like, oh, was that a problem we were waiting to be resolved? Oh, okay, great. I'm glad his son, who I've seen in two scenes, finally got that backbone I didn't know he didn't have. Well, they get up to that space station. They attach the big air tank. Uh, They get all the crew on, but the flight crew and the three volunteers. And the three are a reporter, a photographer, who are both staying behind to capture the story of the century. Mm Mm-hmm. And they've been kicking around the background of this movie the whole time, but like I would have been hard pressed to say if they had a name or not. Well, that's the thing. This there's an interesting idea here of like you know a few people need to stay behind, and and it's and there's this sort of noble effort of a few people, like you're saying, the reporter, like I'm going to stay behind, I, I, you know, for whatever reason. But it would have been more effective if we had spent a little more time with these people, maybe less time on some of these. Uh, these other characters that don't really matter like we could have spent a little time and, and learned about them so this this noble act would have i think resonated a little more fair enough um but the other one who's saying mine to make the make it an even three is joe the lucky employee who won the trip up here mm-hmm. and captain briggs has to talk him into staying because captain briggs has an idea he's like you're an electrical engineer You could go out there, you could fix the wires that are impeding us from using our jet engines, which have been recently refueled, and maybe we can somehow get back to Earth if you do that. Mm -hmm. And Joe's my favorite character. The actor's doing a killer job with this character. He's sweating all the time. He's uncomfortable. He doesn't like flying, and now he's stuck in space. And when he's asked to go out and fix this thing, he's just like, he's the most put upon. He's like, you want me to go? I don't like being on a plane. You want me to be outside of the plane in space? Uh, But he's going to do it because he's a hero. Yeah. And, And again pretty good sequence that i think they should have spent more time on which is him going out and trying to fix stuff i think there's something to be said like not quite maybe like a a bomb diffusing sort of scene but there was something there that i think they they missed a beat they spent too much time on some boring stuff and they could have spent more time on on uh on this of him trying to fix something that was unfixable you know yeah, I would have loved to spend more time with this uh, sweaty, scared man. The actor was doing a great job. Yeah. I love when he's gonna when he agrees to do it. He's just like, well, of course I'll do it. I don't want it, but I'll do it. He's like, what I'm gonna need is a wire stripper, some wires, and a clean pair of pants. <laughs> is that what he said? I think he, he also says like, I think he's like, I need three hours, and they're like, you got one. He's like, all right. <laughs> yeah, they really they really give him uh, what's his name from Star Trek a real engineer problem. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Scotty, do it in an hour. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, all right, I'll do what I can. Of course, Dave discovered there's no angle at which Starflight can re-enter, and uh, the captain's just like, well, I guess we'll just have to try and hope we don't explode. But then Josh has one more brainwave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is, we should say, it's convenient, and it, I guess it works, is that Josh is able, throughout the movie, once he comes down, he's able to communicate in real time to the ship, um, and people are also able to communicate to the ship. So they have that little bit of like, you know, uh, man at the computer sort of thing they can always rely on. Yes, there's no there's no delay. They don't have to wait 20 minutes and uh, hope he gets yeah. the right answer. <laughs> That's right. His idea is that Starflight has no heat shield, but if it were to follow a space shuttle down through the atmosphere, the space shuttle could act as sort of a plow through the atmosphere, acting as its space as, as its heat shield for it. I, it. I have to say, it is interesting that pretty much all the ideas are just the Columbia coming up. It's like. Man, you should just have the Columbia take people to Australia. Because, like, every single idea is like, what if we use the spaceship? And, like, next one, what if we use the spaceship? But, Jordan, the Columbia can't get back up in time. It's not enough turnaround. They're running out of air up there. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. NASA has another shuttle nearby repairing a satellite. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
Don't worry, but they got they got a bunch of them ready to go. They got nothing else going on. And they try to play with the idea the O2 is running low. There's like, is there, there's not enough O2 to get us back. And they're like, let's just empty this air tank and maybe it'll be enough. You know, it's 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 mm-hmm. light tension. It's not really that. You never at any point question it. But, it, you know, they try to bring that O2 back into play. Yeah. And I actually thought when we see um, the ship originally come to take the people and make that little like uh, little space compartment so everyone can get in and get off the ship. I thought they had brought a bunch of um, uh, uh, spacesuits, uh, like for astronauts. I thought they were bringing that because they were going to give it to the people that were remaining, like the three, four people, so that they could stay as long as possible. That's what I thought they were doing because I saw them with suits, but they never came to play at all. Am I right? I don't recall that directly. I, you just reminded me, though. I do remember that at one of the flights, they called down when Columbia was coming up and they said, we're getting hungry up here. Can Columbia bring us extra food? And Columbia did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm like I'm, I'm just dying for grilled cheese i assume it was pizzas i assume columbia ordered some pizzas and brought it up <laughs> the second meal anyway they do this re-entry scene i know you didn't like it as much i thought it was all right i like to you sort of watch starflight hover over top of the space shells that comes in and like they all get get very red from going through the atmosphere and uh they cross through and everyone cheers because the starflight has made it to the atmosphere but it took a little damage mm. and uh they lose radio contact and we we get this not long, but not not long sequence where we're just hanging out at Starflight Command, waiting to see if Starflight will actually fly in and land. And uh, you see Josh on the tarmac staring up in the horizon, mm-hmm. and we get like a time jump, and he's just like, "It's been too long. They didn't make it." And then suddenly, Starflight swoops in. Yeah, and has a has a nice smooth landing. It all worked. They were exactly right. They did everything the way it was supposed to, and they made it back safe. And for some reason. Captain Briggs, Cody, is wearing, like, a fisherman's hat. Yeah, total success, Jordan. Other than those seven dead people, it was total success. <laughs> yeah, other than that, it was a great first flight. And then my favorite part is it lands, everyone's cheering, and the captain gets off and uh, hears that his wife gave her blessing to leave him for his mistress. Yeah, the, we, we should say there's a scene, like, maybe three three or four scenes before they finally land. Janet, his wife, she's she is there. Because every time um, uh, the wives, they have terrible roles, the wives, like, show up of, of our characters. And Janet shows up, and she's just, like, there. And she basically is like, eh, I don't really care anymore. I'm out of here. And she leaves. And it's literally just created so that you can have this moment of these two characters so they can, like, tell each other they love them love each other for the first time and have this as i said the laziest kiss is honestly it's worth watching the movie just for how bad this kiss is and uh but it's like why did you even do that did the did the did the affair add anything like i don't know if it necessarily took away but it was like you could have just had two people reunited if you wanted to show this like moment of people who missed each other and and, and made through this harrowing event but like why did you even have to add the thing of the wife and then she leaves and it just was dumb just adult life is complicated, Jordan. Sometimes you got a mistress. Sometimes you got a wife. You don't know who to choose. And it takes a star flight to clear your mind enough to know. You know what? You're absolutely right. I take it back. You're absolutely right. It takes a star flight to learn these sorts of things. <laughs> I did like that, though. Uh, as Captain Briggs' wife, I think at some point, right near the end, turns to Josh's wife and says, when my husband gets down, tell him he can do whatever he likes. I forgive him. And I'm just like, what? Okay, I guess so. And then like she get, he gets off the plane. And he's like, where's that publicist? I'm leaving my wife. It should have been like, she's like, tell him to do, to, he could do whatever he wants. And she's like, oh, also I'm taking the kids, the house, all of his money. See you later. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so angry, Jordan. <laughs> was, was that, I was going to say, was that too much personal information? <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
Well, Jordan, that, I mean, that's it. That's the end. They yeah. land, he kisses his, his mistress, and then uh, the movie's over. What, what do you think? Final notes? You know, it's an interesting it's an interesting movie, and, and I don't think it's bad. It's not quite great. There's, I think there's something missing. Like, it definitely has a charm. I personally felt it was a little too plotting for its own good. Like, I think they could have easily cut out 20, 30 minutes, and you wouldn't have really missed it, mostly from the beginning. Like, I don't know if I needed so much time with these characters. I think you could have shown us a little about the characters through the scenarios when they were already up in space. That's what's exciting, and that's when things are happening when you're on the plane. To just have them boringly walk around in their apartments before the before the plane I'm like eh, I don't really care so much and and it really amounts to not much so it was a little p- too uh, a little too plotty for me but I think it's it's okay it's it's not a bad time you know all right what do you want to write it then I would give it um I think it, I think I'd be hard pressed to give it anything more than a six out of ten what would you give it I'm a lot like Stanley Kubrick in a lot of ways oh is that right I was sitting there watching this just like this is fine time this is a fine time of uh watching on TV oh yeah uh seven it's a full. It's a full seven. Full seven. You know, we're, again, we're not that far off. I think maybe, maybe it, it it was a little slower than I would have liked. So maybe that's why my rating's a little lower. And again, I know this is terrible, but I just for whatever reason, I don't know if it was particularly Lee Major's performance or it's just the character doesn't have much to do because he just sits in a cockpit the whole time. But I was just like, this is our main character. Like, because Josh is <laughs> Josh is really the main character. He's the driving force of this. He's the one making the decisions. And I think he's a much it's a much better performance. There's more to do. And I think there's it's kind of a missed opportunity to have this pilot just sit there and like, like the most he does is he kind of doesn't shave. Like he doesn't do much, you know. Oh yeah, there's no character there. There's practically no characters in the movie for that matter. Uh, it's an odd film that way. There's no hysterics. There's no melodrama. You're right. Yeah. They set up, like you said, a whole bunch of character plots that don't go anywhere and don't pay off at all. But I was just sitting there, just letting it wash over me. I'm just like, this is a fine time. I'm having a fine time. <laughs> yeah. Why? Oh, what are they going to do next? A coffin, you say? <laughs> oh, hamster tube in space. Let's go. Yeah. Again, it would have been. I would have liked to ratchet the tension up a little bit, but I, I would wouldn't disagree with you. It's it's a fine time. If if this is up your alley, if you like these types of movies, it's it's not terrible you know it's it's not it's a tv 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 movie version of those movies you like and it's it's fine perfectly (laughs) fine well there you have it it's the end of the episode jordan so as we do Mm. every time i'm going to tell you about bonus episodes for charity yeah let's do them it's our initiative this year where if you give a little bit of money to a charity that's listed on our website continuendrag.podbean.com as selected by past guests do a little donation. We recommend $50, but if that's above your means, no worries. You can give less. It's okay. We're not going to hold that against you. We know everyone has different means. Uh, you can send some charity money. You send us the receipt to, for your donation, and then you pick a sh- episode of a show that we either took the escape pod on, or maybe it's one of the best of episode uh, speed runs we've done where we've missed a few mm-hmm. episodes and you want us to go back and, and watch a sliders we missed. Watch, uh, watch a, what's that one we watched? A Project UFO we missed. Uh, whatever you like, you you choose. Oh yeah, Project UFO. You choose, and we'll uh, we'll put that on and watch it once you make that donation. So you can find out all about that on the website continuumdrag.podbean.com or on social media in our bios. There's links on how to get to that site, so you can just head there if you like. And of course, if you have any questions, just email us here continuumdrag@gmail.com, and we'll be happy to answer them. And on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'll have some clips from uh, uh, old Starflight. Lots of miniature work. Lots of space tubes. You got it all on this. I I, I don't know if it's going to make it, but I would love to see that lazy kiss again. 
that lazy kiss oh I'll, I'll think about it i'll think about going back and getting <laughs> jordan i think it was best when you said you have to watch the whole movie to get to that lazy kiss it's worth it. <laughs> yeah it's true you don't just put it on instagram make it make you have to watch all hour 50 minutes of it that's just the big payoff you gotta wait for it. yeah you're like wow he really didn't give any effort <laughs> i don't think that's the relationship's gonna make it <laughs> well it's like i don't think these two actors liked each other very much <laughs> well that wraps it up for this week so listener thank you for joining us in jordan i'll see you next week the conduit's still hot <laughs> <laughs> i'm making it happen Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario, and Seoul, South Korea. Theme music by James Rick Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dalek and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Younes. <laughs>